Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm Professor of Economics at Lehigh University. With me, as always, is Glenn Hubbard, Professor of Finance and Economics at Columbia University. How are you today, Glenn? Great, Tony. How are you? Doing very well. We should start by saying that we're recording this a little bit after 7.30 on Monday morning, March 13th. We're going to talk about um, banking, the failure of the Silicon Valley Bank. So some of the things we say may be overtaken by events uh, before people who are listening to this get a chance to listen to us. We do have a blog post on HubbardO'BrienEconomics.com. That's HubbardO'BrienEconomics, all one word, .com. And the blog post gives some background to what we're going to talk about. And we'll be updating that with new developments. So people might want to check that out. Well, Glenn, we, we've certainly gone through, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, an amazing series of macroeconomic events, right? We had the pandemic with the biggest decline in output and employment over a short period that we've ever seen. We had the bounce back as the economy uh, began to open up and output employment had the biggest increases we've ever seen. We've seen very stimulative fiscal policy by most measures the most stimulative non-wartime fiscal policy we've ever seen, big spending increases, some tax cuts. We've seen uh, expansionary monetary policy. And then we saw very high inflation, highest inflation we've seen since the tail end of the great inflation of the 1970s. And beginning last March, we saw monetary policy turn on a dime as the Fed began raising its target for the federal funds rate from effectively zero in a series of steps uh, that will probably continue uh, later this month when the Federal Open Market Committee meets again. And then last week, the subject of today's podcast, Silicon Valley Bank, which as the name indicates, is located in Santa Clara, California, in the heart of Silicon Valley, and was the 16th largest bank in the United States began last week seemingly in fine shape and by friday uh was effectively out of business as the federal deposit insurance corporation took them over so two questions maybe to get us started the first is what the heck happened to silicon valley bank that would cause the fdic to seize them and then why do we care i mean if this were say uh, a restaurant chain or um, you know some other business, uh, it wouldn't be on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. People wouldn't be talking about it. Um, why do we care so much that the 16th largest bank in the United States uh, collapsed last week? Well, those are great questions, uh, Tony. This was obviously a shocking event. And it certainly has changed public policy. Depositors have now been effectively backstopped, whether they were insured by the FDIC by law uh, or not. Uh, and obviously, that's going to have to spread to other banks should this, uh, should this happen, as it already has the Signature Bank, a bank here in New York that failed uh, yesterday. The way I think about Silicon Valley Bank is it's an, an indication of how the business of banking is always uh, fragile, in a sense, uh, and possibly uh, runnable, meaning that 
uh, depositors can ask for their money back in a way in which the bank uh, is unable to satisfy. So with, with, with Silicon Valley Bank, there had been a swelling of deposits in recent years from venture capital funding, as you said, that they were the bank of choice for many of the nation's elite startups in, in Silicon Valley and in, indeed from all over the country. The bank required uh, a lot of balances uh, there. So if the bank itself did venture debt on top of venture capital equity investments, there had to be bank deposits at Silicon Valley. So a number of those portfolio companies and venture capitalists held large deposits uh, at the bank. That's a deposit base that's um, inherently more concentrated than a typical bank. And in a typical bank, uh, your demand to withdraw your money and mine may not be that correlated. You have things that happen in your life. I have things that happen in my life. So deposit uh, outflows may not be that correlated. If you're really concentrated in one type of base, you can be very, very correlated. And that was a problem. What happened at the bank, as all this money came in, bank management, quote, reached for yield. So yields at the time were close to zero. So they went out the yield curve to longer term treasury securities and bought them uh, to have a higher interest margin. Now, of course, the problem with that, uh, as you said, the Federal Reserve was changing monetary policy. And that's going to mean higher interest rates and lower bond prices, a point we make uh, in, the, in the principles book. That, of course, means that in principle, the bank could wind up even with negative uh, net worth, or certainly the need to get capital because the value of its assets, those longer dated treasury securities, has fallen. In the case of Silicon Valley Bank, they did try to raise capital to shore that up, but of course that did not reassure depositors at all, along with some prominent voices uh, in Silicon Valley saying, time to take your money out. This was an accident that's waiting, uh, that's waiting to happen. To your question of does it matter? Well, it certainly matters to each and every business that had their money in Silicon Valley Bank. My guess is there were a lot of sweaty palms all weekend about whether they can make payroll. Typically, though, the public policy concern is about a different question, uh, and that's one about contagion. And so is there something that happens at Silicon Valley Bank, which while many Americans probably had never heard of it, had $212 billion and assets, and as you said, 16th largest bank in the country, it's not tiny, is there's something about the failure of that bank that presages others. And there, I think the policy concern uh, would be middle market lending. There are a number of other banks in that boat, First Republic Bank comes to mind, uh, where people might worry uh, that they're similarly exposed. So policymakers had to act quickly, and quickly they did. They backstopped the depositors, the UK part of uh, Silicon Valley Bank has already been sold to HSBC, was in the news uh, this morning. But this is a story that's going to play out. And in terms of a teachable moment, it's an excellent opportunity to talk about how a bank run happens. Things start slowly and then go much faster than you think. What contagion is, uh, the link between monetary policy pivots and what happens in financial stability, uh, and then obviously a general discussion of risks in banking. So uh, as economists, we always reach for the teachable moment. We don't wish the crisis on anybody, but uh, but there it is. Uh, I, I don't know, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I think you've hit the main points. Uh, it is one of those situations where you don't quite know 
um, that there is a problem uh, until it sort of springs on you. Because as you mentioned, the fact that the Federal Reserve has been pushing up interest rates, and of course, the key interest rate they push up is the very short-term rate, the overnight lending rate, the federal funds rate. But that ripples through the economy. And we've seen that as um, there's been something like a doubling of the interest rate on two-year treasury notes. And there's been an increase in the 10-year treasury notes. And people who have been um, uh, trying to buy a house have noticed that mortgage interest rates have gone up. So as you mentioned, a, a, a key fact about the financial system is that interest rates and the prices of securities move in opposite directions because if you're holding a bond and interest rates go up, that means the payments that you're going to receive from the bond are worth less in present value terms. I mean, that's a, a point that um, students often have a little bit of trouble grasping. And effectively, that's what happened to Silicon Valley Bank because as you mentioned, despite the fact that they should have known that interest rates were going to go up because, of course, Fed Chair Jay Powell didn't spring this on us, right? He has been um, saying over and over again in public statements, the other members of the Federal Remark Committee have been doing the same, that interest rates would have to go up to try to slow down the economy a bit so that inflation would come back down near to their target of 2%. So it shouldn't have been surprising, but as you say, when you have a lot of funds as Silicon Valley Bank did, they took in a lot of deposits and they were looking around, well, what can we invest these deposits in? They decided to reach for yield, as you said, to get a little bit higher yield on those deposits on, by investing them into longer term securities, despite the fact that um, doing so meant that if interest rates were going to go up, the prices of those securities, if they should have to sell them, are going to go down. And actually, there, there are a lot of banks that are in that same situation. And it's disguised in a sense because the accounting rules and the banking laws say that if you, the bank, say, well, you know, I'm, I'm taking these bonds, buying these bonds, um, but I'm not going to sell them until they mature. So yeah, I've got two-year treasury notes. And if I had to sell them, I would take a loss because the price is lower than what I pay. But don't worry, I'm not going to sell them. I'm going to hold them to maturity. And of course, what that means is that once they mature, you get the face value of the bond back. And so it doesn't really matter that the price for a while was lower. So as a result, banks that have taken sort of paper losses, we sometimes call them, you know, the uh, unrealized losses on their bonds. Uh, people have been sort of, uh, people meaning uh, investment analysts, most economists, and certainly depositors have been blasé about that. Well, okay, that's not a problem. But then as you say, last week, Silicon Valley Bank found it was a problem because they had some deposit outflows and uh, in order to raise funds, they had to sell some of their bonds. I think it was like $21 billion worth of bonds, yep. which they lost $1.8 billion. So they took a pretty substantial loss on that. And they told everyone, don't worry, you know, we'll, we're going to make this up by selling more stock. And uh, we're perfectly solvent and fine. And there was a great line in a, uh, 
an article in Fortune magazine that we quote in the blog post. Um, and after uh, the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank said that, the article says, nobody believed him. <laughs> and the problem then was that people said, whoa, uh, you know, what's going to happen if they, uh, if they end up having to sell more bonds, take more losses? They could be insolvent. And as you mentioned, as we talk about in the book, the thing about bank runs is if you're afraid that the bank might not be able to give you your deposit back, you don't want to be last in line. You want to be in first in line. You want to get it while the money is still there. And of course, if everybody thinks that way, that's how you end up getting a bank run. And um, it, it, the blog post, we talked about this being a classic bank run because it very much resembled what happened, say, in the, the early 1930s when there would be a bank that people would think this was before deposit insurance. And there would be a bank that even if it was, it turned out to be a, an incorrect rumor that they were having problems, people would immediately in those days physically run to the bank and uh, insist on getting their money back, sort of like the famous scene in the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Of course, now it happens even faster because people can electronically tell Silicon Valley Bank, oh, you know, I need my money. It needs to be moved over to my account in JP Morgan Chase or, or somewhere else. So it is a, a fascinating um, episode that really does allow, you know, it's, it's traumatic for the people who've gone through it, but it does allow instructors, I think, to talk about most of the key points in banking. And it allows people to, it allows instructors to also raise um, some of the policy issues, which you touched on. Maybe we can go into that more because of course, the idea that there would be a limit on deposit insurance, which is currently $250,000 per deposit per bank. So if you have less than $250,000 in a bank, you really needn't worry because um, if the bank should happen to fail, the FDIC stands there to make good and you will get your deposit money back often right away or you know typically the FDIC will seize a bank on Friday and maybe you won't have access uh, to your deposits till Monday but there's no worry but there is that limit and of course the rationale for the limit in an economic sense is you don't want depositors of all types even those with millions of dollars in the bank to be uh, indifferent to what the bank's doing you want to have some monitoring going on and the idea is that um, if you don't, then there is the moral hazard problem, right? If people are insured, they get careless, they don't care what their bank is doing. But now we've just in this particular situation with Silicon Valley Bank, we've seen that the Treasury, the Fed and the FDIC stepped in and said, well, okay, we're effectively eliminating that $250,000 uh, limit everybody's uh, deposits at Silicon Valley Bank have, uh, are, are going to be um, available to them this morning. And so um, what does that do? Is that, is that an indication that we're on a path that essentially we're gonna eliminate that $250,000 limit on uh, deposit insurance across the board? So all banks are gonna be able to say that you put your money in the bank and you don't have to worry however much you put in. And if we are headed in that direction, what are the consequences for the financial system and the banking system? 
Well, it's a super interesting question, Tony. You know, the origins of deposit insurance uh, in the U.S. came about from a very fragmented banking system where consolidation was difficult and deposit insurance was seen as a politically acceptable way to help that fragmented banking system survive. But the theory, as you said, was always that there would be larger depositors who presumably were more sophisticated, more able to monitor than you or I would on our small deposits, uh, and they would effectively be the monitor. But of course, if they're indemnified, then why should they make the investments in, in monitoring? And the uh, Fed and the Treasury action that was released uh, this weekend came out overnight last night nominally is aimed at two banks. It's at Silicon Valley Bank and at um, Signature Bank, but one has to believe that if, say, 10 others fell into that bucket, they too would be they too would be protected. So I do think that's a very significant public policy change, probably one that members of Congress on both sides of the aisle will have points of, of view on. There's another issue uh, underneath here, which is about um, too big to fail. Because one concern this weekend was with the uncertainty as to how the FDIC, Fed, and Treasury would resolve the crisis, maybe I shouldn't have my deposits in banks that aren't automatically protected by the government, meaning, say, J.P. Morgan Chase or Bank of America, other big banks that are so-called too big to fail. So I think this crisis and the way it was handled, both of those margins on the indemnification of deposits of whatever their size, the fears of too big to fail, mean the financial regulatory discussion here is uh, is going to go on. You know, I think at the same time, some of the public policy concern that led to uh, action here was one, to make sure that this panic didn't happen. And second, the concern that Silicon Valley Bank may have been financing highly innovative companies I think that concern may be somewhat overblown. They are financing highly innovative, innovative companies, but those relationships presumably could have been replaced. But I think the contagion fear was real and it caused the Treasury and the Fed to act very quickly. But I agree with you, these spillover discussions to deposit insurance and too big to fail are likely to be with us for a long time. Yeah, it, it is interesting because um, as you know, to to do this, to actually waive the $250,000 limit, the uh, they had to formally invoke this exigent circumstances and declare that uh, Silicon Valley Bank's failure uh, would cause systemic risk, is the is the phrase. And so they actually had to take a vote, two thirds of the of the board members of the board of governors of the Fed and two thirds of the board of directors of the FDIC and the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, they all had to agree that this was the case. And I think that Congress had really intended for this um, clause to be invoked when you had a really big bank that somehow or other, J.P. Morgan Chase or some other very large bank had gotten into trouble. So when you go all the way down to the 16th largest bank, you do begin to wonder, well, where are you going to draw the line? And of course, as part of the policy debate, you do wonder whether there will be certain members of Congress who will say, well, you know, the headquarters of a, of, uh, a regional bank is in my district and they're the, uh, the 65th largest bank. What about us? Are you just going to, you know, 
bail out the big boys or are you going to bail out everybody? So I think that that's an issue probably that we'll hear um, quite a lot about. I suppose the other thing that, that to kind of circle back to why the runs took place at, at Silicon Valley Bank, as you mentioned, they kind of resembled one of the smaller banks from um, the fractional system, fractured system that the U.S. had, where it used to be the case before there was interstate banking and um, in some states you even had unit banking, it was called, where you could have just a single bank, you couldn't even have branches. You had a situation where, um, say you were in, in downstate Illinois and, and a farming area, probably most of your deposits were deposits that were connected with farming in one way or another, local businesses that either were farmers or selling agricultural equipment or something. And most of your loans were to those same businesses. So you were quite vulnerable if it turned out to be the case that there was a drought, say in that part of Southern Illinois, or if you were in Oklahoma in the um, the oil fields and most of your loans were to uh, connected to oil and most of your deposits were oil firms, then you had the same problem that if oil prices declined, uh, you, would, you would potentially have real problems. And we kind of saw that, I, I think, with Silicon Valley Bank, because as you mentioned, they didn't have a lot of what are called retail deposits, meaning you know, the average person had their money in there. You know, the local restaurant in Santa Clara had the money. There may have been some of that, but clearly more than 90% of their deposit. I think it. there's been different figures given out. It was either 93 or 97% of the value of the deposits were above that $250,000 limit. And of course, that's not retail deposits, right? That's not the average person or the average small business. That's large businesses. And we... Part of what probably set off the run is that some of those startups and um, that had their money there have been running into trouble, right? We've been hearing a lot about problems with some tech companies. And the way this works, of course, is that you have a venture capital firm, right? We, maybe we should very quickly mention venture capital firms, which are an important part of the US financial system, that they get around this asymmetric information problem that. You know, the average investor say, well, I'm not going to invest in a startup in Santa Clara or San Francisco. I have no idea what their product is and whether it's going to make any money. But I will give my money to a venture capital firm because I'll, I'll, I'll rely on that, them to pick which companies are going to succeed and which uh, are not. And these venture capital firms then provide the funds to the startups. And typically with a startup, you're not actually generating much revenue. So what the startups typically do is they take the funds from the venture capital firms and they use them to make payroll and, you know, pay the rent and, you know, pay for um, their computers and whatever else they need. But as more startups have run into problems, they were running down that money that the venture capitalists had given them. And that money, by and large, was deposited in Silicon Valley Bank. So Silicon Valley Bank began to lose deposits just the way a bank in downstate Illinois would have begun to lose deposits as farmers run into tough times and they say, well, I'm gonna have to pull my money out of my checking account because I'm not selling enough wheat. And as that happened, then, as you say, the, the way that they needed to raise money was to sell off these treasury bonds, which turned out to have declined in price. And so we got really what was a classic bank run. 
So if you were to guess, uh, say a month from now, or even six months from now, what do you think the main fallout from this will be? I mean, will we see, say, a, a, a wave of mergers within the banking system where banks say, wow, you know, I, I, I can't survive as the 65th largest bank because of some of the problems of, of depositors getting nervous and people not being willing to, um, to, to lend to us, um, right? Because the other thing is that the so-called unsecured lenders to Silicon Valley Bank may have been wiped out in this deal. So there'd be people who had made loans that were not secured by any specific collateral. Will we see a, a, a wave of mergers as banks say, I gotta get bigger so I don't run into these problems. Will we see a rapid response in Congress? Is Congress going to see this as an emergency? And boy, we better get some emergency banking legislation through. What do you think the, the fallout will be? Well, it's a great question. I, I, I think it's in three steps. So in the nearest term, like the next week to a month, there'll be a lot of focus on various regional banks and who has what problem. That's the way crises spread or don't. I think in the middle run, there's going to be a discussion about consolidation, as you say. And keep in mind that the Biden administration has a suspicion about bigness, uh, which many economists think is only loosely correlated with what true antitrust problems are. But nonetheless, there's a public policy concern uh, about bigness. And I, I expect consolidation may not be as easy as it was uh, during the financial crisis. Indeed, the regulators may be having a tougher time finding a buyer for SVB's, Silicon Valley Bank's US assets uh, to the extent that the um, Justice Department or the Federal Trade Commission might oppose um, the merger. In the longer run, this is a political economy issue for all the reasons you said. I think there will be a renewed discussion of, does this codify too big to fail at unacceptable levels? If some people are forced to take losses and others didn't, a phenomenon that happened in the financial crisis, 2008, you know, there's a suspicion that the regulatory system isn't fair. So I, I think that that political economy discussion, which may seem remote today, I think that's going to be the most painful part of this. But I, I wouldn't expect it to start now. Congress acting quickly? No way. I, I, that one I don't see. <laughs> I, I don't see a fast action. Whether that's good or bad, I, I, I will reserve judgment. Well, Glenn, this has been uh, a fascinating episode, and I'm sure we'll get back to it when we talk about uh, banking and monetary policy and, and other issues in future podcasts. So for now, let me just remind listeners that we do have a blog post up at HubbardObrienEconomics.com that they can check, and we will be updating that. And it provides some background as well that um, they might find useful. Uh, if they want to discuss some of these issues in class. So we'll stop here and look forward to talking to you again on the next edition of the Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast.